For the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been talking about the virtue, the power that is uh, in persistence. We, we, we talked about Elijah. We talked about uh, Jacob as two men who were tenacious in their prevailing with God uh, for the things that they desired, the things that they wanted, the things that they needed. And, and they were tenacious in their, uh, in their wrestling with God until God gave them what they were asking for. We also looked at a, a woman. Jesus told a story about a, a, a widow who, who turns out to be the hero in the story because uh, she was persistent. And, and, and that story was told to his disciples with this in mind, that they should never quit, that they should never give up, that they should become likewise persistent in, in all of their life, not, not just in the area of prayer. But then last week, what we talked about was the ultimate example of persistence in a person. And that person... Uh, we, we described in a poem as the hound of heaven, that the Lord himself pursues us and chases us. Uh, the ones whom he loves, he finds us, and, and when he finds us, he will not let us go, even if, even if we backslide or we turn away from him. He pursues us, and he is relentless in his love. And so I said this last week that God doesn't allow our disobedience to short-circuit his relentless love. God didn't allow his, our disobedience to short-circuit his relentless love. And, and that's, that's good news for us. And so if you're in Christ this morning, uh, if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus, that is, that is excellent, great news for us today, that it's the love of God that pursued us, it's the love of God that bought us, it's the love of God that sought us and has redeemed us by uh, the sacrifice of his son. That's the good news for us. The not-so-good news for the whole human race, the not-so-good news for the whole human race is that there is someone else in this world who is also relentless and persistent and tenacious. But his relentlessness and his persistence and his tenaciousness is not for love or not for good, but rather it's for evil. And I'm talking about Satan. And let me just say this up front about Satan. Satan is not the, the opposite of God. He is, he, is, he is a created being, howbeit fallen and perverse and designed and destined for ultimate destruction, but he is not the opposite of God. God has no opposite. God is the creator. God is holy. There is no other God save the Lord our God, okay? If Satan had or Lucifer had uh, a, an equal opposite, that would probably be Michael, the archangel. Uh, but even Michael, the archangel, has, has defeated or expelled uh, Lucifer out of heaven at least one, on one occasion, maybe as many as two occasions. But the relentlessness and the persistence of this evil force called Satan comes from the fact that he is blind by his ambition and blind by his own pride. And as a result of that, he is tenacious. Listen, if, if you don't believe in the existence of, of the devil. I get it. I, I understand. I, I don't fault you for it. I don't agree with you, but, but I don't fault you for it. I, I understand. But I also uh, feel that it's important. And, 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 and so what I'm going to ask you is this. If you're in that category where you don't believe in the existence of, of, 
of the devil, of Satan, uh, that you at least have an open mind throughout this message. And one of the reasons is because it's important uh, to have an open mind. And the reason for it is that ignorance is not bliss. You know, if, if, if we have the attitude as a nation that we're not afraid of terrorists, we're not concerned about terrorists who want to destroy Americans, that doesn't make it less terrorizing or less dangerous. In fact, it, it, only, it only increases our vulnerability, and as a result of that, we are, we are in greater danger. So ignorance is not bliss. What you don't know can hurt you. So I'm just, just saying, just be open-minded for, for a few minutes today. Uh, one of Satan's most effective strategies is described not by, um, not by a theologian and, and not even by a preacher, but one of the uh, sharpest, uh, truest statements comes from a, a movie character in the movie The Usual Suspects. He, he, here's the quote. The devil's greatest trick was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The devil's greatest trick was to convince the world that he didn't exist. And that, that's from the movie The Usual Suspects. A poll taken back in September of 2013 surveyed 1,000 adults from different walks of life and different stages of life, baby boomers, premillennials, the whole, the whole range. And they asked the question, do you believe in the existence of the devil? And 57% said, yes, they do believe in the existence of a personal devil called Satan or Lucifer. 28%, however, said they did not believe in the existence of the devil. 15% said they're not sure or they really didn't care one way or the other. So you take those two numbers, the last two, the 57 and the 28, I'm sorry, the 28 and the 15, and it comes out to 53, I'm sorry, 43% of people either don't believe or don't care to know. It's like I said, what you don't know can hurt you. Ignorance is not bliss. I came across an interview in New York Magazine with Supreme Court Justice Anthony Scalia. Supreme Court's been in the news a lot this past week. This is the time of the year where they make their decisions known and they, they reveal their verdicts and all that stuff. Um, he was expressing in this interview his belief in a real heaven and a real hell. And the interviewer asked him the question, well, what about the devil? Do you believe in the existence of the devil? And he says, of course, he's a real person. The interviewer was apparently not only surprised, but, but, but obviously skeptical. And she said, in the interview, she said, have you seen any evidence of the devil lately? And this is what Anthony Scalia said, and I think it's interesting. He said, you know, it's curious. In the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's, he's causing pigs to, to, to run over cliffs, and he's, he's possessing people and, and, and whatnot. And, and he says, and all that happened... But now that doesn't seem to happen that much anymore. Maybe he's gotten a whole lot smarter and basically said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What is he doing now, she says. And, and this is his response. He says, he's getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful this way. He's got a whole lot wildlier. Now, I think for me, the most compelling 
evidence of the existence of a being called Satan is that Jesus believed in Satan. And he not only believed in Satan, but he expelled demons and he cast them out. And he said, now is the God of this world going to be judged? And the Bible describes how that at the cross, Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He defeated Satan there at the cross. He destroyed the one that had the power of death that is the devil. And, and, and in fact, the Bible says, for this very purpose, the Son of God was revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. But one of the best quotes I came across on this subject was from C.S. Lewis, who uh, in a book called The, the Screwtape Letters, which is, which is a, a book about a mature demon who is writing to his apprentice nephew uh, about the... Uh, well, here's, here's the quote. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall concerning devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive or unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, they don't care if you don't believe in, the exist- in their existence or if you become so overly interested and obsessed with demons that, that you are seduced to this evil side. They don't care. Both errors are, are opposites, but they're equally dangerous. They're equally harmful to people. So this may come as a shock to the 43 percenters. This may come as a shock to anyone who doesn't believe in their existence, but, but I got to tell you that everyone who is born into this world is born under the power, the influence, the sway, and the control of this wicked one called Satan. That is the reality of what is revealed in the scriptures, that every single person born into this world is born under the influence and sphere and sway of the wicked one. Just as there are people that are born in other countries and and some of those countries have tyrannical leaders and and dictators who are oppressive. So so likewise, every single person that is born in this world is born under the tyrannical reign and leadership and rulership of the God of this world, Satan. But here's the good news, that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, that Jesus Christ came to set us free from the deception, he came to set us free from the control, from the influence of every demonic force and power. And Jesus rescued many, probably the majority of people that are here this morning listening to me. Jesus has come and out of his grace and mercy, he's rescued us. He's, he's pulled us like brands out of the fire. He's, he's, he's rescued us and given us eternal life. And he says, I've, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Before coming to Christ, let me just say this. Uh, As a result of of having experienced this in my life, uh, and I know that for many of you, there is a compelling force, it's called the love of God, that that motivates us to rescue others as well. I mean, that's really the burden of my heart this morning to share with you that because we've received the love of God, there is a compelling force in us to share how that you might likewise be rescued out of Satan's domain. So before coming to Christ, um, in my early 20s, uh, I was steeped into 
uh, habitual sin, uh, addicted to, to drugs. Uh, I was lost uh, under Satan's control. My sweet wife, who's nodding her head up there, she was equally lost and equally bound by Satan, but she was bound in her goodness. She's sweetie, goody two-shoes. Me, I was wicked, <laughs> you know? I mean, you look in the dictionary, wicked, there's my picture. You look in the dictionary, goody two-shoes, and there's Kathy's picture. But she was just as lost as I was in her self-righteousness as I was in my addiction and in my, in my sinfulness. But the, the grace of God appeared to us on the same night, in the same moment, hand in hand. We, you know, we, we, we walked into the kingdom of God together, and that was 40-something years ago. And uh, what God did for us, God can do for you. And I don't know what your story is this morning. Maybe your story is similar to our story. But God can do for you what he did for us, and he wants to do that today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to know we're glad that you're here. We've been praying for you, and we hope that your heart will be open today to, to at least listen to the gospel this morning. You see, all of us were once under the control of the prince of the power of darkness. But here's a great truth, that Jesus Christ, the only name that is given among men whereby we must be saved, has made a way so that you and I don't have to be bound in the slavery of, of mandatory sin or of Satan. You see, we need deliverance from both. We, we need to be forgiven. We need to be set free from the power of sin, but we also need to be set free from the influence of the demonic principalities and powers. And that's the mission of the Son of God. And that's our mission as well. For this purpose, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And part of what we're to do is also destroy the works of the devil. And the way in which we do that is by preaching the gospel. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit will seek and save those that are lost. I want you to listen to this amazing portion of scripture written by the apostle Paul that describes this deception that is taking place and the reason why there's a 43 percenter the, the the reason why that there are some who who disbelieve in the existence of a personal being called Satan though though evil is manifested and wickedness is, is, is so obviously all around us I mean all you have to do is you don't have to even read the Bible all you have to do is read the newspaper and you could see what, 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 what could motivate a man to leave his, his, his 22-year-old in a car. That's what I meant, 22 months. <laughs> 22, well, there's some 22-year-olds who need to be left in the car. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what I meant. That didn't come out right. But all right, let's get to the scripture. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This, uh, this explains the reason why the world is the way that it is. He says, he says, therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, preaching the gospel, sharing with the lost. We do not lose heart. I love that. We do not quit. We do not give up. We do not faint. We persist. It is the love of Christ that compels us 
to persist. Rather, he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We're no longer doing that. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, that is, we make the gospel message understandable because the gospel is simple so that a child can understand it. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, God has given to every man a conscience. And somehow or another, God can speak to that conscience and he can reveal truth. Even though you may not fully comprehend or understand everything that is being said, yet there's an inside witness that is your conscience that God can touch and can say, say, this person's telling the truth right now. This isn't even, and this is it. And even if our gospel is veiled, that is, it's concealed, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God, little g, of this age, Satan, Lucifer, the prince of darkness, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the reason why. There are so many who disbelieve, don't believe in God, don't believe, they don't believe in anything. They'll believe in a million other things, but in the reality of Scripture. Why? Because the God of this age has deceived them, blinded their minds, lest they should see the gospel and be saved. For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ. There was a man who was walking uh, along the shore and he comes across a little boy and washed on the, on the sand are literally thousands of starfish that have, that have washed up along the sand. And the little guy is picking up one at a time and he's throwing them back in the water. And, and the, the man is observing the boy for a while. And so he comes over to the, to the young, young boy and he says, son, wh- what are you doing? And he says, I, I'm, I'm trying to save as many of, of these starfish as possible by throwing them back into the ocean. And the man says, son, there's too many. It won't make a difference. And the little boy reached down and he picked up one more and he said, it'll make a difference to this one. And with that, he threw it back into the ocean. The need before us is so great. There are so so many that have a need. And, And, you know, our attitude can be, listen, it's beyond us, right? We may not be able to rescue everyone, but we can rescue some. We may not be able to make a difference with everyone, but we can make a difference with some. And that's the point this morning. There's a Hebrew saying that, that, that goes something like this, that to save one life is to save the world. And I think the root of the meaning of that is that God started the world with one man, Adam. And that in, in one man is that ability to, to create a world. But I, they mean that physically. But, but, but I, I believe that one life is so important, that one life can make a difference. Who, who knows Who knows if the person here this morning that is yet to accept Christ is the next Billy Graham, is the next Apostle Paul. Who knows? But that one life is so important. I don't know if you heard of this story this 
this past week. It happened last Sunday on the interstate in Minnesota. Uh, a guy's car just went on fire. Anybody hear the story about this? A guy's car went on fire. Flames coming up from underneath the car. The man on the inside of the car, the driver, he was the only one in the car, but he was stuck inside the car. The doors would not open. He couldn't, he tried to break the glass. The glass wouldn't break. The locks were stuck. A good Samaritan pulled over and stopped to help him. And with his bare hands, he took the door frame and he began to rip it down until the glass shattered and broke and the man was able to escape through that window. What an amazing story, right? When, when, when the man was interviewed, he simply said, it was just sheer adrenaline. And, and he said, I, I didn't do anything that anyone else wouldn't have done who, who would been, have been first on the scene. But this is what the Minnesota State Trooper said. He said he did an extraordinary deed, bending a burning locked car door in half to free a trapped person. It was an extraordinary life-saving measure that kept the man from burning alive. Can I tell you that there are extraordinary needs that are all around us that need more than, than a burst of, of adrenaline. It needs, it needs persistence. It needs our tenacious ability to be more persistent than the devil is persistent, more tenacious, more, more insistent that we should rescue those that are perishing, those that are like brands in the fire. There's a story I came across about a mother who actually wrestled an alligator to save her 12-year-old son. Her 12-year-old son was snorkeling in a river in Florida when an alligator bit it on the head. Now, now the thing I got to ask this kid and the thing I got to ask this mother is, what, that, what were you thinking about? Swimming in a river in Florida where the, you know that there are alligators? I mean, what were you thinking about, right? And uh, the story goes on to say that, that, that she began to wrestle this. She saw what was going on. She jumped in the water. She began to wrestle with this 11-foot alligator. She grabbed the boy out of the alligator's mouth. It broke his leg, but it saved his life. Now, what's the common denominator of both those stories? See, here, here, here's the thing. There are times when people can do extraordinary things, things that seemingly are impossible because of this, you know, burst of energy, this, this power that is released. The, the need is so great that there is an urgency. Now, 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 just think about this for a minute. Maybe, maybe it's not so much the impossibility of what we're facing in rescuing people but maybe, maybe we lack the urgency of rescuing those that are perishing. You see, I, I think if we begin to marry urgency together with persistence, it is a formidable power and a formidable force. So let me ask you this question. What if? What if we were as urgent about saving souls as this mother was about saving her son? What if we were that urgent or as urgent as that good Samaritan who bent the door to rescue a man 
that was trapped in a burning car. Urgency, married together with persistence, powerful force. I want to I talk to you for the remainder of this message about a, a woman who had both urgency and persistence. And as a result of that, she, she saw her daughter rescued, not from the jaws of an alligator, but from the jaws of Satan himself. So let's look at Matthew chapter 15 together. Both Matthew and, and Mark tell the story. But we're just going to look at Matthew. There, there's a detail or two. Uh, that is also helpful from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew kind of, I'm sorry, uh, Mark kind of tells us that, that they were so busy at this particular point in the ministry of Jesus that they didn't even have time enough to eat. So it says, leaving that place, le- le- leaving all of this chaotic ministry, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And uh, they, they were going to have a time of R&R, rest and recuperation, you know? Uh, because it is necessary at times that we, that we walk away from the busyness of life and the busyness of, you know, and, and, and we take that vacation, sweetheart. I insist, you know? Uh, Jesus kind of said it something like this, let us come apart lest we come apart, you know? God's designed us with the need to rest. And uh, resting is important. And, and here Jesus and the disciples were resting their, their bodies. They were resting their minds, their emotions. I mean, they had been spent in the ministry. Now, what I want you to see is verse 22. It says, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, and this is a cry, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, which is, which is many of the ways in which Jesus was approached by people in Israel. They approached him in the same way. Lord, son of David, son of David being synonymous with Messiah. So she is confessing her belief that this is the Messiah, son of David, the one whose right it is to sit upon the throne of David. So she's crying out for mercy. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession or from being demonized or or being controlled and manipulated by by a wicked and an evil spirit. Now, now let me say this. I, I said it before. Every single one of us born into this world are under the influence, under the control, you know? Obviously, some more than others on a scale of one to 10, here's a 10. You know, here, here's the worst case scenario. If, uh, if deception and temptation are down on the lower scale of one and two and three, and, and like, here's the worst case scenario. Here's a, a daughter, a child, who is being victimized by a demonic spirit. And she's crying out for help. This is just a great story because, because in it, we, we not only see the persistence of this mom, but we also see the reflection of the disciples, which is not very flattering at this point. But we also get a glimpse of the wisdom of Jesus, the teacher, because Jesus knows this. Listen, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that it is more important to get truth out of experience experiential truth 
than it is to get truth in a classroom setting because apparently the classroom setting for these guys didn't work because they didn't have an understanding of the depth, the breadth, and the length of the ministry of Jesus, that it went way beyond Israel, that it was to the whole world, that it was not just to men, it was to also to women. It was not just to the old, it was also to the young. Remember, these guys, not very long before this, were rebuking parents who were bringing their children to Jesus and wanting them, Jesus, to lay his hands on them and to bless them. And they were chasing them away. And Jesus said, you guys don't get it. You, you, you know, such is the kingdom of God. Bring the kids to me, right? And so, and so they are not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed as far as understanding the scope and the breadth of the ministry of Jesus. Listen, for those of you that are here this morning, and you have family members, you have, you have, you have a spouse, or you have, you have children or, or grandchildren that don't know the Lord. This message is to encourage you that you should never quit, you should never give up, that you should lay hold of the one who is able to make a difference. And verse 23 says this, the word yet is mine, yet, I added that, Jesus did not answer her a word. Not a single word did Jesus answer her. Here's a test. And the test was for the woman, but it was also a test for the disciples. How was she going to, how were they going to respond to his apparent indifference or his apparent silence? No, it was more than apparent. It was silence. And so, and so to the disciples, it would appear that Jesus was being unsympathetic, that he was being indifferent toward the needs of this poor mother whose daughter was, was demonized. So it says this. So his disciples came to him, to Jesus, and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe she did. Maybe, maybe she said, maybe she tried to get them to intercede for her. Can, 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 you, can you get me closer to Jesus or something like that? But, but, but really, that's not exactly the way that it went, or at least that's not what we're told. They kind of added themselves into the story as people of importance, right? And so the disciples are misinterpreted Jesus' silence as a lack of sympathy or compassion for this woman. And you know what? To many people who read this for the first time, it looks like Jesus is rude. A, a, a couple of my grandkids, uh, three of them, came over the house the other day. And, uh, you know, the, the first one gave me a big hug and a kiss, and the second one gave me a big hug and a kiss, and the third one, I won't say who it is, Brittany, but... She just like totally ignored me, you know? And, and, I, and I said to her, Brinny, I said, that is so rude. I didn't get my hug and my kiss. I said, do I look like chopped liver to you? Which is something I often say. Do I look like chopped liver to you? Which invoked a big smile and I got my hug and I got my kiss. See, I knew she wasn't really being rude. She was just said something else on on her mind. And, and Jesus wasn't being rude. He had something else on his mind. He is the author and the perfecter of faith, and he knows how to extract faith 
And you wouldn't think that the silence was a way of extracting faith, but as we see the story develop, it does. Will she be offended by the silence? Will she get angry at God? Will she get angry with Jesus because he is silent? Now, now can I just say this? Don't ever, 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 you know, get upset when heaven is silent. See, if it was easy, then we wouldn't need persistence. We wouldn't need the character of perseverance, but because, because it is not easy, we've got to learn and cultivate this grace of persistence in our lives. Tyre and Sire, two Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. But here's the point. These people were bitter, bitter enemies of the Israelites and, and vice versa which kind of explains, doesn't justify it, but it kind of explains the reason why the disciples had such contempt for this woman because of the years of of the animosity that existed and the contempt that existed between these two races of people. And Jesus' silence emboldened them to say, get rid of her. She's bothering us. Then, Then verse 24 says this, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, that probably stings more than the silence. Maybe he didn't hear me, right? So, So she cries out louder, Lord, have mercy on me, help me. My daughter is demonized. But now it's like he's closing the door on her. And, and he, says, he says, I'm not sent but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, you're not my mission. You're not one of my sheep. You're not really my concern. I'm not sent to the Gentiles. That's what basically he's saying. Now, I, I wonder if any of the disciples at this point are beginning to feel sorry for this woman. I mean, some of these guys must have had children of their own. And, I mean, is, is anybody going to stand up for this woman? Is anybody going to have the guts to, to, to hate what Satan is doing to the child? Or are these guys just going to be as silent as Jesus was before? Verse 25 says, The woman came and she knelt before him. So she comes closer to him. She says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She comes with humility and with reverence, even in the face of rejection. She doesn't quit. And this is the point. She doesn't quit. I mean, you gotta gotta love her spunk. She's not gonna let silence discourage her. And she's not gonna be discouraged by the fact that he says, you're not my mission. She says, Lord, help me. She's being stretched. And her faith is being made evident. I tell you what, most people would have said, they would have got offended. They would have been angry at God. I've known more people who are angry at God over the years than anything else. Because God doesn't move in the way they thought that he should move. And they get angry with God. Verse 26 says, Jesus replied. This is his response to her cry, Lord, help me. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. At this point, the, the, the tension level in this, in this room is so great, you can cut it with a knife. And the disciples must be wondering, 
Is God better? Is God bigger than my Jewish theology about the separation of Jew and Gentile, about why Jesus has come? They still don't understand the magnitude of his ministry. You see, the woman is not the only one who needed deliverance from demonic influence and control. They needed likewise deliverance. They needed a heart transplant. They needed to to be changed in their mind and in their attitudes. They were being tested with the test of love. She was being tested with the test of perseverance. But the meaning is clear. And she gets it. She understands. Israelites, they're the children of God. Gentiles were dogs. I get that. I understand that. And I think what Jesus was doing was that he was forcing them. By that harsh statement, he was forcing them to take a look at themselves in the mirror. This is what we look like. Our attitude toward Gentiles is they're dogs. Now, now, now dogs... You know, it's funny, in, in the prayer time this morning, we were downstairs and, and Brendan was showing a picture of his sister's dog and, and they were talking about dogs and Kelly and Doug's dog and cute little dogs. Dogs back in the day were scavengers. They were garbage eaters. They were as unclean as pigs. And so when Jesus says that, he's referring to her as being un, unclean as pigs, like a scavenger. Will she run away? Will she get offended? Will she walk out there in a huff? And then she says this, verse 27, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yesterday we were having uh, barbecue uh, in our patio with uh, my seven grandkids. And, and at one point there was a trail of potato chip crumbs that you could follow, like back into the pool, you know? I mean, the evidence was there. Yeah, that's the way kids eat. They, they, they make crumbs. And she's smart enough to realize that, okay, and, and she's saying, all right, let the kids be fed first, Jesus. But even the kids leave crumbs. And it's their little dogs that eat up the crumbs. That's all I need. I'm not asking for a lot, Jesus. I'm asking for just the crumbs. She comes back at Jesus with grit and grace and wit and evil in even a sense of, as serious as the situation is, even a sense of playfulness in, in their conversation. And the point is she doesn't give up. She's passed the test of persistence. The disciples, not so good with the love test. Not now, anyway. They will have hearts transformed. But verse 28 says this, Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed that very hour. She came to the only one who can help. She came with a sense of urgency and she came with a sense of persistence. And when those two were married together, she was able to acquire the very thing that she sought for. Let me tell you, some, some of us have loved ones. We have, we have uncles and aunts. We have, we have brothers and sisters who are so far out of the kingdom of God. It looks impossible, but what will make 
the impossible possible is when we develop that sense both of urgency and persistence before the throne of God. And we lay hold of God. And we put God in remembrance of, of Acts chapter 16 where God, you said that, that, that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your whole household as well. And there were other promises upon which we can lay hold of God. But, but here's the point. The disciples, at this point, they're watching and, and they they're probably need some help picking their mouths up because their mouths have fallen to the ground. They can't believe this woman. When she walked in, they looked at her as an inferior, but now she, she was in every way a superior to them. They couldn't teach her anything, but she could teach them about the power of persistence. In his book, Oswald Sanders wrote a book called What of the Unevangelized? It's a question. What about them? What about the unevangelized? He writes about an Egyptian woman upon hearing the gospel for the first time said, it is a wonderful story. And then she asked two questions. Do the women in your country believe this? I don't think that they can believe it, she said or they would not have taken so long to come and tell us. And then he says this. He says, why is it that we are so easily moved in the presence of physical need or peril or suffering or an emergency, and yet so unmoved by the spiritual needs of someone's eternal well-being? So I just want to ask you a couple of questions in closing. What if we lived with that Minnesota man's sense of urgency and we were able to bend the doorframe with our bare hands because somebody inside was perishing? What if we were as determined as that little boy on the beach who picked up those starfish one at a time and wanted to save as many as he could? He would make a difference at least in some. What if we lived like the Phoenician mother with persistence and urgency, pleading with the Savior to save those that we love and call them out by name? What if we had the courage to wrestle sons and daughters out of the jaws, not of an alligator, but out of the jaws of Satan? What, what, would, what would life look like? if we began to live with this sense of urgency. So, so he, he, here's my bottom line this morning. Imagine, imagine if we married this morning, if God did something in us today before we close because we're gonna pray. Imagine if we married urgency with the power of persistence and we lived like that every single day. What could happen? I don't, I don't want, you to look back over your life with regrets because you lost opportunities. I know what lost opportunities are like. When Kathy and I were first saved, we were living in uh, Queens in a two-family house. And uh, the tenants upstairs, we lived in the, the downstairs, the tenants upstairs were, were a, a, a nice couple, an, an older man and his wife. And he, he was a pleasant fellow, except when he drank. And when he drank every day. And he would, he would work, he'd come home, and he'd drink all night long, and he would, he, he would get drunk. And, and I had this desire in my heart 
to share with him, listen, God rescued me from drug addiction and God can rescue you from alcohol addiction. And I, and I, and I, was, just, I was just waiting for the right opportunity. And one night he came home when he was drunk and he walked up the stoop and it was only like maybe three steps in the concrete or, or brick steps where we live. And he was so drunk that he fell backwards and he hit his head and he died. And I lived with that regret for, for a little while. This was before God called us into the ministry. But I, I don't want to look at opportunities over the course of a lifetime and say they've been missed opportunities. What would it be like? Imagine what it would be like if we could marry urgency with the power of persistence. What would our lives look like? I tell you, I I believe that they would be dynamic. Would you join with me in prayer? So Father, I pray today, oh God, Lord, I know that you're in this message. I know that you're in this place. I know that you're in our hearts. And and Father, I, I do pray, Lord God, if there's one person here that doesn't believe in you, that's the most important thing. Our interest is not in the devil. Our interest is in the God who is able to set us free from the power of Satan. We're not, we're not, we're not obsessed with the knowledge of evil. But we are passionate about the knowledge of our Savior who is able to save unto the uttermost. I, I pray this morning if there's anyone here that falls into that category, that they will not leave this place until, until God, you open their hearts today, right now, as I'm speaking. Give them the knowledge that salvation can only come through one name, that there is only one name given whereby men must be saved, the name of Jesus. And the, and the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as that. If you will call on Jesus' name as Savior today, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The deception over your life will be broken and the powers of darkness over your life of influence will be broken and you will have life and have it more abundantly. And I pray now, Father, for every single one of us here that know you, that have a relationship with you, that we will not miss new opportunities that you will make from this day forward, that when we see the door of of opportunity open to us, that we'll walk through that door with a sense of both urgency and then the power of persistence. We pray for this grace to be at work in us today, right now. Work grace in us, Jesus. Work this virtue. Work this persistence in us. You who are the most persistent person who has pursued us and chased us as the hound of heaven, so will you give us likewise that same kind of spirit to pursue people that we love, people that may even be strangers to us. May we be such of a an impact that we rescue the perishing. Amen.